When I was a boy, my Sunday school teacher decided to challenge us to memorize a particularly lengthy passage of scripture one year. Believe it or not, our class of grade school boys wasn't particularly excited about reading the Bible on our own, and we certainly were not enthused about the prospect of spending the time to memorize a, a large section of it. Our affections were drawn elsewhere, like to playing baseball, playing with baseball cards, doing other things that pertain to baseball. However, he told us whoever could memorize all of this passage, they would get a prize. A prize, I thought. My ears perked up. He gave us several weeks to study and to try to commit the passage to heart before the big day of reciting it. Weeks went on. I worked on the passage. I was curious if anyone else had been trying to memorize it. I remember calling my competition, say, you been uh, working on that passage? Nah, not really. Oh, I haven't much either. Interesting. Well, I kept working on it, and I got it down, and the big day come, came, and your boy was the only one that could do it. I said it all, and I received my reward. And to the dismay of all the unfaithful servants of that grade school, Sunday school class, and at the height of its popularity, I received a beautiful boxed Batman watch. You're thinking, oh, like the, the cartoon kids' digital watches. Oh, that, that's cool. <laughs> oh, you've got so much to learn, my friend. This was a real watch, a ticking timepiece, real hands, quartz-like movement, all black with the yellow Batman logo contrasted center stage on the dial, something Bruce Wayne certainly would have wanted to wear, but he couldn't. Something the Joker would have been jealous of, and it was mine, oh mine. The others, surely they were envious of such a striking accessory. Go on, gaze upon it, guys. You can look, but don't touch. This is the watch of a winner. There was another boy who had valiantly tried but had come up just short he was forced to face the reality of his unpreparedness as well as face the evil in this world without the help of a superhero watch. I don't remember how much time had passed since I acquired the timepiece, but eventually, some time after, my Sunday school teacher called me. Hey, there's this other boy, and boy, he did really well too. He memorized a lot of scripture. You know, you did say the most scripture, and that's what it was all about, but I, I wondered if you'd be okay if I gave him a prize as well. So I thought about it. Absolutely. Surely he deserved something, a yo-yo, a braided finger cuff, bird-shaped water whistle, scratch and sniff snicker, some selection from the Oriental Trading Catalog, Hey, my dad was even the music minister. I bet I could get him his very own hymnal. <laughs> that way he could sing of sweet Beulah Land anytime he wanted. But 
that wasn't what the teacher had in mind. He said, I've got another Batman watch. I wondered if it was okay with you to give it to him. I was caught off guard, but I said it would be okay, and I hung up the phone. What I said, what I said did not match what I felt. I felt like I was the only one that deserved to bear the bat on my wrist. He would wear the watch unworthily. Sure, he would get the watch, and I would see him wear it. And we were friends, so he flaunted it around like a newly engaged girl would do her ring. I didn't like it. It was a great prize, a great gift. I just didn't like it that he got it too. In my mind, he didn't deserve it. So I suppose I join a host of villains in holding the dark knight responsible for that dark chapter in my life. By the way, I searched for it on eBay this week, and I believe I found the exact same watch. Despite its vintage charm and storied history, it is surprisingly quite affordable at the price point of $19.99 or best offer. I offered $15. It'll be here at the end of the week. True story. Jonah had received the great gift of grace. It was the perfect gift. He readily received it, but chapter 4 paints a picture of an angry prophet. He certainly had nothing against the gift of grace itself. He just lamented that now the name tag said Nineveh. What could have been such a story of triumph is a bit of a cautionary tale. The minor prophet ends on an unresolved minor note. It's a bad ending to a great story. Chapter 1 shows us Jonah's disobedience. 2, Jonah's deliverance. 3, Jonah's repentance. But 4 displays Jonah's resentment. Charles Swindoll says it this way. 1, is running from God. 2, running to God. 3, running with God. 4, running against God. That's good. You should write books. This is a sad chapter in Jonah's story. And I think God wants to use it in our stories. I think he wants to teach us tonight. Before we go any further, will you pray with me? God, help us to see Jonah's story with fresh eyes. God, may we hear it with open ears and apply it to soft hearts. We love you. We need you tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you open to Jonah chapter 4 with me if you're not already there? I'll begin by reading the first few verses. It says this. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I I said when I was still in my own country? There, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. But I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. 
As we've journeyed through Jonah, we've been considering some lessons for our lives tonight. I would like to add to the list we're working on. The first this evening, the 10th of our study is this. Resentment leads us to grieve over God's goodness in the life of others. Resentment leads us to grieve over God's goodness in the life of others. Jonah was exceedingly angry, upset, up in arms, absolutely miserable at the detestable sight of the grace of God. Revolted by their repentance and the relenting of God. For the first time in his prophetic career, his his predictions would have failed. His reputation as a prophet had certainly been ruined. Jonah was fuming. Furthermore, the Ninevites deserved judgment. In chapter one, readers are forced to speculate. Why would Jonah run? No need to speculate now when Jonah spells it out. The reason Jonah runs is revealed in chapter four. It wasn't to finally get fit, to burn off the stress of a prophetic ministry, improve his self-esteem, to promote a cause bigger than himself. No, Jonah's anger, his running was rooted in God's relenting. He knew God was forgiving. He didn't want the Ninevites forgiven. Jonah can't hide or hold in his hostility. And out of the mouth, the heart speaks. What's in the well eventually comes up in the bucket. And when the water came up from Jonah's well, well, it was bitter. The prophet certainly had a clear grasp of God's character as reflected in his near quotation of Exodus 34, 6. In fact, Jonah's words about God are almost identical with Joel's description of him. I'm a prophet. I knew you were just like this God to just take my life from me. But Jonah didn't seem to mind when God had given him grace. At the very least, Jonah felt that grace should have borders, and and those borders should correspond to the territory occupied by Israel, God's people. Jonah, your lips once praised me, but now they're pursed pouty at best. Jonah, you are the person who can't celebrate victories in someone else's life. Only yours. It's such a strange, angry rant. Usually the assailant has anger-filled rants packed with the worst adjectives and most abhorrent attributes they can conjure up, but Jonah's outburst stands in contrast. Be saying to God, Here we go again, classic Yahweh. You want to know what you are? You want to know what you are? You're full of grace, merciful, slow to anger. And another thing, you're abounding in steadfast love. Well, that's the kind of chiding that we receive and we'll say, I'll concede that's a fair assessment. I'll give you 20 minutes more to stop that kind of talk. If Jonah would have had any friends, they would have certainly had a hard time uh, validating his feelings. Gracious, merciful, and loving, huh? Yeah, we get it, Joe. Stay away from that guy. Sounds like a nightmare. You can't help but wonder if that unforgiving debtor mentioned in Matthew had Jonah as his middle name. Do you remember the story the Savior gives? A man owes a king an exorbitant amount of money. He can't pay for it. 
Uh, because of this debt, they were going to sell him everything he had, all of his family. But he, he begs for forgiveness. Please, please, no. And the king grants him not just a lower fee to pay back. No, he forgives him of the debt. Later in the story, that same forgiven man finds a man, a fellow slave, who owed him a much, much smaller amount. The Bible says that the man finds the one that owes him money, and he seizes him, and he grabs him by the throat, and he says, get me my money. In similar fashion, that man falls down at his feet, please, please, please. Not only does he not forgive him, he has him thrown in prison until he can pay it off. The other slaves go to the master and say, look what's happened. They're grieved over it. And the king then is angry. How dare you? I can't believe I forgave you of everything. And look how... You're treating this man who owed you so little. And Jesus, as he's telling the story, says, that's how the Father will deal with you who don't forgive your brother in your heart. See, no one deserves the kindness of the king. We're all beggars for grace, but Jonah isn't rejoicing in grace any longer. Rather, he is grieved by it. Aren't you glad as we mature as full-grown followers of Jesus, we are immune from this kind of behavior? You ever see someone experience a blessing and you you didn't like it? You, You couldn't celebrate it? Your face said you were happy for them, but your heart said they don't deserve it. Oh, it can manifest itself in a million scenarios, but believer, beware. We are in a dangerous place when we withhold grace. Surely there's been seasons when you too have seen it in yourself, sensed it in your spirit. Now, why is that there? Maybe God's spirit has revealed it to you. He's spoken it to your heart. He's pointed it out. And he said, I don't like that. I don't like that I've given them grace, but you're withholding it. See, Jonah is in a miserable place in the middle of revival. When you resent while heaven rejoices, better check yourself. Resentment leads us to grieve over God's goodness in the lives of others. Another lesson. Resentment makes us eager to see others fall. Look at verse 4 and 5. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and he sat under the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Here, Jonah sounds like a child, a little pouty prophet. Yet God is still so tender and gracious to him as he often is to us in our shortcomings. It's like God leans down on his level. 
hey, buddy, why do you have your sad face on? Because you are nice to Nineveh. Jonah, do you have a reason, a good reason to be angry? Apparently, without even answering God, Jonah, uh, answering God, Jonah takes his toys and leaves and builds a fort outside the city where no one else knows the secret password to get in. What do you do when you don't get what you want? When things don't go your way, our maturity is often revealed in such occasions. Still bitter, Jonah builds a shelter outside Nineveh, still hoping that the city would be destroyed. From his fort, his fingers are crossed, holding out on hope for fire from heaven or anything that would destroy this wicked people. No pursuit of God's plan, no petition for a fresh calling to a new mission, just positioned in a way where he can see the city fall. Years ago, my son and I went to the colonial golf tournament. Uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area had seen tons of rain. We even thought they might cancel it, which we were very disappointed. It was the whole reason we had gone to that area, but they, they, didn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't cancel it. And so we were super excited. It, it was crazy muddy, though. I, I mean... I don't know that I've ever seen a golf course in that kind of shape, just mud everywhere. People were covered in it, but it, it was kind of fun. People were sliding around and kind of having a good time. It was, it was kind of like Woodstock for middle-aged accountants. <laughs> kind of parting for people whose idea of getting wild was by being mostly silent and only being briefly intermittently interrupted by soft applause. So naturally, I was all about it. Many people were covered in mud from falling down. Everyone's shoes were in rough shape. One particular par three had a, a mudslide to get down toward the tee box. I didn't know it at the time, but once you started over the hill, you were going down the hill. My son and I crested the hill. I slipped around a little bit, but with my raw athleticism, I was able to recover and the grace of God. When we got to the bottom, we learned that a crowd had gathered to watch people come down that hill. <laughs> to no one's surprise, it was way more entertaining to watch people fend for their lives on the, the mudslide of death than to watch guys in dress slacks chase a white ball. There was a long wait for the players on that par three for the, the green to clear and, and one pro was out loud giving the play-by-play -play as people were coming down. Are they going to make it? Are they going to fall? Oh, they're getting shaky. We pay $50 to get in to watch golf. These pros had literally millions of dollars of prize money at stake and we're all standing at the bottom of a mud pile watching unsuspecting spectators surf the turf. When we harbor resentment, we don't want to take the high road where we warn people of the trouble ahead. We want a good seat down at the bottom or we can watch them fall. When resentment resides in us, 
There's some people, if we saw them in need, we'd rather offer our foot than our hand. They got what's coming to them. They deserve it. You know what they've done. But see, here's the thing. God knows what I've done. And he knows what you've done. God knows what I deserve, and he knows what you deserve. But he offered us his grace, his mercy, his patient, abounding, steadfast love that we didn't deserve. Just like Jonah, when things don't go our way, we can get upset and we can set up camp outside the city. Jonah is just a bitter man hoping he can see his enemies fall. See, that's where resentment lives, hardened, calloused, angry, cynical, and jaded. Jonah longingly looks towards Nineveh in hopes of their demise. Don't look there. Don't live there. It's no way to live. See, resentment leads us to grieve over the goodness in the life of others the goodness of God in the lives of others. Resentment makes us eager to see others fall. And then resentment robs us of the life God gives us. Look at verse six, and I'll read through verse eight. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Jonah, who had been rescued from a watery grave, is now in danger of death from sunstroke. Here is Jonah, so drained, so taxed, so weighted with resentment, he says, just kill me. Death is better than life. If this is what I have to deal with, I'm done with this. Resentment will drain you. See, you grow tired, bleary-eyed, trying to watch the city. Do you know the same Hebrew word that was translated life in Jonah 2? when he's praising God in his prayer for his life being lifted up out of the pit is the same Hebrew word now in chapter four when he says, God, take it from me. Resentment is a choice and it's a blatant decision to steal from yourself. It drains the life out of us. Years ago, there was a a show on the Discovery Channel called It Takes a Thief. It was some criminals, some guys with a criminal history that would teach you how to keep your stuff from getting stolen. And with the blessing of the homeowner, they said, sure, come rob us. It was such a crazy concept that you would be willing to open the door to thieves and say, come take it all. See, choosing resentment is a choice to open the door and give full access to your life to a known thief. Satan's work is to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give you abundant life. 
When you're in the throes of resentment's robbing ways, make no mistake, its source is evil. There's a great great quote you've probably heard that many attribute to the great African theologian Augustine. It's this, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. See, resentment will rob itself in order to suppress from someone else. But it isn't content until everyone's been ransacked. Resentment robs us of the life that God gives us. Resentment leads us to grieve over the God's goodness in the life of others. It makes us eager to see others fall. It robs us of the life God gives us. And finally, resentment aims our affections at temporary targets. Look at verse 8 with me. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became, he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Resentment aims our affection at temporary targets Jonah's affections were distorted. He cared more for a plant than for human lives. He cared more for comfort than the destiny of an entire city. Jonah thought God was being ridiculous and sparing the Assyrians. God now exposed Jonah as the one who is being ridiculous. Jonah, should you be angry over this? Should you have compassion for a plant and not 120,000 people? His resentment had aimed his affection away from what God had affection for. See, Jonah is a tragic tale. Both the prophet Jonah and Israel were guilty of disobedience and disaffection. What a tragedy when God's people care more for their comforts than for the interests of God's will to lost men. Resentment leads us to grieve over God's goodness in the life of others. Makes us eager to watch others fall. It robs us of the life God gives us. It aims our affections at temporary targets. As the book concludes, Jonah was angry, depressed, worn out, weak, and he was forced to reflect on God's word about his Void of compassion and the vast depth of God's compassion. See, you know by now this story isn't just about Jonah. It's not just a story about a great storm, a a great fish, and a great city. It's the story of our great God. The God who is gracious. 
The God who is compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. We too have been sent not to resent, but to have compassion on wicked people. That's not going to change. We do have a choice in it. When faced with that calling on being sent on mission to a wicked world, we have a choice, a choice to be bitter or burdened for the wicked, to have a soft heart or a heart of stone, to disconnect ourselves or determine to reach them. See, God's goodness, it's a gift that it's okay to re-gift. Grace is different that way. Just keep giving it away. No need to conceal it. Don't be caught without it. Keep a surplus in storage. Always some on hand. Keep it handy in the back of your car, in the back of your pocket. Feel no shame or embarrassment when regifting it. God is the best gift giver. When we give like him, we can't miss. When we read this narrative, we're forced to consider Am I like Jonah? Am I like Jonah? Reluctant to obey. Is what I value distorted? Are there people that my life shows that I hate? Do I withhold the same grace and mercy that I've been given? For you and I who are followers of Jesus, we must ask ourselves, Am I like Jesus or am I like Jonah? Jonah bought a ticket away from lost people. Jesus bought them with his blood when he gave his life. Jonah folded his arms in anger while Jesus stretched his across the cross. Jonah's heart screamed, I hope they fall, while Jesus prayed from his heart, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When your life is considered, are you like Jesus? Or are you like Jonah? Has God put someone on your heart tonight? A person? A people? Is he saying to you, should I not have compassion on them? I love these people, do you? He says to you, I love lost people, do you? Do you love lost people? Jonah's story is over. He's got a great story with a bad ending. Now you, your story's still being written. I wonder, how will your story end? Let's pray. God, again, we thank you that we can come to your word God, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces into us. It exposes who we are. God, we want to be like your son. We don't want to sit outside the city. We want to go into the city that you've called us to. We don't want to be burdened with resentment. God, we want to be burdened with the same compassion that moved you. God, will you give us hearts like that? 
Will you give us that kind of desire? God, will you give us lives that love people? We look to you for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.